Welcome to the Bully Pulpit from the University of Southern California Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. Hello and welcome here to the Center for the Political Futures uh, discussion today, which we're calling, we got a little clever, words that work, red states and climate change. And, and joining us, I'm going to do a few introductions, then we're going to discuss a few relevant topics. I'm Mike Murphy, co-director of the Center for the Political Future here at USC, and I am delighted and intimidated by the panel. These are the experts, the experts call. So we're really lucky to have a great panel here. Now I'm going to start with somebody I'm going to call the Mysterian here because he hasn't quite joined, but Congressman Garrett Graves of Louisiana's 6th District. Oh, here he is. Hi, Garrett. Perfect timing, man. He's a Republican member of Congress. He's the ranking member for the new select committee on the climate crisis, and he serves on the House Natural Resources Committee. And even more impressive than that, before being elected to Congress, I believe in 2016, am I right about that, Congressman? Maybe. 14. <laughs> Recently, a few terms, he was a key staff member on many of the committees that really make the policy on both the Republican side, I think he advised some Dems too, over on the Senate. So somebody really knows how this thing works. We also have Catherine Hayhoe, who is another accomplished, incredible atmospheric scientist and expert on climate change, why it matters to us here and now, quite famous as a, as a hugely effective communicator on climate change. She is the political science endowed professor in public policy and public law uh, at Texas Tech and co-directs their climate center. You also might recognize her because she hosts the PBS digital series Global Weirding. And she, I should be on that. And she has been named one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People and a United Nations Champion of the Environment. Bina Venkatraman is a journalist and editorial page editor at the Boston Globe and a longtime author and science policy expert. She was a senior advisor for climate change innovation, one of my favorite topics in the Obama administration, where she worked on partnerships to prepare for climate disasters and declassify data that would be useful for global development. She's a former director of the Global Policy Initiative at the Broad Institute of Harvard and MIT. Wendy Bruna de Bruin, I hope I didn't mangle your name, Wendy, it's good to see you is with us here at USC. She is the Provost Professor in Public Policy, Psychology, and Behavioral Science at USC. Her research focuses on the psychology of judgment and decision-making, as well as risk perception and communication. She's published, get this, more than 130 peer-reviewed papers on topics including nature, climate change, and climatic change. She's worked with the UK Met Office, United Nations Foundation, and electricity providers to improve their communication about climate change and sustainability. She's also an expert on public opinion research. We've worked together on some things here at USC. So welcome, everyone. I'm just going to kick it off with some questions before we can uh, address some of the questions our audience might have. And because this is the red state panel, I'm going to kind of get right to it. As we all know, we're in kind of a tribal politics now. And polling data, real-life experience of any politician will tell you that in the Republican world, which, you know, is a lot, 74 million votes, I think, in the last election, there's great skepticism as the effects and causes of climate change making it quite difficult to find a bipartisan solution to this growing problem as Washington is so dug in. So none of us want to live underwater. Most of us have some respect for science. Why is this so hard for the parties that come together on? And I'm going to start with somebody of practical experience here, uh, our friend uh, Garrett. So, Congressman, why don't you start, and then anybody else can jump in after that. Hey, Mike, thank you, and I, I appreciate you moderating today. I, I want to clarify one thing. I, I know you said there were 75 million Republican votes. I'm confident I read somewhere it was closer to 400 million. But in any case, uh, <laughs> I, hey, seriously, um, so, so it's, it's a great question. Why does this have to be such a contentious, uh, such a divisive issue? And, and I think that um, the, the good news is actually that you're, you're seeing a lot more consensus on this issue than you saw in the past. And, and let me let me clarify. Um, years ago, if you talked about climate change, you often would see conservatives go in one corner, liberals go in the other, and there was absolutely nothing for them to discuss. Um, today, by, I believe, 
taking this issue and breaking it into bite-sized pieces. Let's talk a little bit about uh, resiliency and adaptation. Let's talk about conservation and efficiency. Look, people are at the table. And, and yes, liberals may be at the table for a different reason than conservatives, but they're all there. And that's all I care about. And so I would argue that we've actually made a lot of progress. We've got to stop talking about climate change. And let's start talking about some of the specific issues that we can digest, that we can focus on. And I'd love to have the opportunity at some point to actually run through some of the successes that I think we've had through that strategy. Great. Okay. Who wants to jump in? I think what's interesting here is that there are, right, there are examples of Republicans. You can have GOP attached to your name and attached to your, you know, your office and, uh, and still be acting on climate change. You know, I'm here in a blue state in Massachusetts, considered nationally bluest among the blue, but we have a Republican governor, Charlie Baker, and he just signed a historic piece of climate legislation that is going to uh, decarbonize, further decarbonize the electricity sector, aggressively uh, deal with climate impacts. Of course, it was proposed by our legislature, but really aligns with uh, the Republican-led governor's plan on climate change. I also think, you know, we have to kind of get away from presuming that bipartisan is equivalent to good. So while I think it would be ideal to pass mostly and almost entirely bipartisan legislation across the country, whether it's at the local or state level or the national level, uh, there are ways in which um, legislation can be passed uh, through the budget reconciliation process, getting a national clean energy standard uh, with a simple majority in the Senate, simple majority in Congress, uh, where we can be acting on what is a really urgent, really costly crisis, uh, billion dollar disasters year after year, uh, increasingly a public health problem that is affecting communities across this country, taking a big economic toll, poses risk to the financial sector, poses risk to the corporate sector. With all of this happening, you have to ask yourself whether you want to solve the intractable problem of political polarization and, and the need for bipartisanship before you solve the climate crisis or in tandem, right? These are problems we need to solve together. But uh, I do believe that climate policy needs to be achieved uh, where it can be achieved by in a bipartisan way, but where it can't be, it probably needs to be achieved anyway. Mm-hmm. Catherine? I couldn't agree more um, with both comments. The real problem when it comes to climate change is not the sciencey sounding objections people throw up like smoke screens. It's the fact that they don't think it matters to them here and now where they live, and they don't think there's anything practical we can do to fix it. So it is past time to move past letting people argue over science we've known since the 1850s and really start talking about How is climate change increasing our risk today? If we live along the Gulf Coast, we're experiencing stronger, more intense hurricanes and sea level rise. Out west, wildfires burn in greater area. Up in the Midwest, record-breaking flood after flood. Along the East Coast, floods and heat waves. We're seeing all of these today, and there are solutions today. Even in Texas, the reddest of red states where I live, we got 22% of our energy from wind last year. So there are solutions. The risks are here now. And when we just bypass the issue of climate change, speaking of words, some of my most productive conversations have not even literally used the words climate and change. We've talked about resilience. We've talked about preparation. And we've talked about sensible, practical solutions that work for people on the ground. Excellent. Can I follow up on that? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Um, See, I want to echo that comment, too. Um, the, the, The issue is that there's a lot of science communication uh, about climate change. Words have been used that are specific to climate scientists, but um, not necessarily well known to members who of the general public who are n- or people of other fields who are not experts in climate science. And even a word like climate change is not necessarily clear. It's, people don't necessarily know what it means. It doesn't really resonate with people. But weather is something that we all observe. And both Republicans and Democrats are increasingly agreeing that the weather has been becoming more extreme, and it's something that everyone is worried about. And so coming together on the concept of extreme weather and what we can do about that, I think, is uh, an important um, way to uh, word the issue at hand. Yeah, I'm hearing a lot about sort of changing the framing of the battle from kind of tired political terms that people hear and they want to line up on one side or another. I'll just chip in, and if people disagree with me, please please speak up, because I've been wrong before. Uh, but as a political practitioner, one thing, if I was thinking like a 
Democrat trying to move this and give cover to the Republicans in the party who are coming around. I think there's there's a need to learn how to kind of speak Republican ease. Because under the climate change debate, there's a, a subtext argument which kind of can lock both sides down, which is generally the Dems want to use government to fix this. And Republicans are very suspicious of that ideologically. So you the, the more that the free market incentives can work. I mean, uh, if we ever get the Coca-Cola and, and PepsiCo to get out of the plastic bottle business, big step forward to go to totally recyclable molecule-based stuff like aluminum. But but incentivizing the free market to move with all that leverage is something Republicans understand rather than a Department of Climate Change. I mean, I've been looking at this Biden infrastructure plan. I'll throw something out folks can react to. And, you know, there's about $174 billion there to kind of electrify cars, which I'm for. But look at the, you know, the Republican way to do that. And even though there are a lot of people who are going to jump at this, but Europe's selling almost 30% the partial or full electric drivetrains now. We're at 3%. That's with the $7,500 check from Uncle Sam. The Biden plan would like to do more of that. I'm, I'm saying, oh, the marketplace is not telling me, although I know there's a cap on, on Tesla and GM now based on they've sold a lot. Uh, the real difference between us and Europe is cost of gasoline. You know, there, it's almost $8 there. That seems to be an incentive market way to move people toward electric cars. Is is there common ground to do more free market incentive stuff, or, or you know, which is more Republican comfortable, but not always Democratic comfortable? So I just want to throw that into the mix uh, as, as one way of changing the debate, because to me, it always gets framed on the Republican side as a big government mandate. We're against that, regardless of the topic. So you don't even get to the climate argument. I would just jump in here to say that I think that they're not mutually exclusive and that sometimes there are areas that are very gray when it comes to policy, particularly policy that supports innovation. So if you look back at George W. Bush's efforts to increase light bulb efficiency standards, so make those standards more rigorous, really raise the bar, that was a signal to the industry, uh, to General Electric and the other companies that make light bulbs, that really led to innovation, right? In a very kind of rapid timeframe, that really regulation, right? Setting a policy saying your light bulbs need to be this efficient uh, within a certain number of years led the private sector to respond to that and be able to come up with profitable, great products that actually met that need. And and I think you saw something similar happen around fuel emission standards in this country, which Mm -hmm. have been made more rigorous um, first in California, of course, and then following at the national level. Uh, But one of the challenges there, right, is that if you don't have enough industry momentum, right, there are a couple different ways you can do that. And there are mechanisms, obviously, price on carbon, uh, market incentives, tax credits you can give, which have been given to the solar and wind industry. Uh, But um, if you're looking at those in isolation, you're talking about a great amount of spending that you have to do at the federal level uh, to motivate the market to move away from fossil fuels. I think it's changing. I think with solar and wind and the prices falling, that's rapidly get becoming a smaller cost um, from the point of view of creating incentives. Uh, but I do think uh, there's a lot of ways in which industry really appreciates standard setting. Um, and if yeah. you are a free market Republican, um, you can still get support from industry leaders, from corporations, from private sector innovators, from entrepreneurs and investors who want to get into the space, um, whether we're talking about efficiency or clean energy or resilience technologies, which are increasingly coming to the fore, where they actually want some guidance. They want those policies in place that they know what they need to adapt to and how they need to innovate. Congressman Graves, what, what do you see in kind of the crystal ball that's practically achievable in the short term? As somebody on the leading edge of this on, in, on the Republican side. Well, so, so I'd actually like to maybe present a, a different perspective on both going unilateral or partisan and on the yeah. last comment about the role of government versus the role of just innovators. Uh, let's, let's not go out and project or look in crystal balls and, and, and guess what's going to happen or predict what's going to happen. Let's look at what has happened. And I think that's the best evidence we can use on charting the path forward. So, um, was it government mandates or was it innovators that caused us to take the Obama-era clean power plan target of reducing emissions by 32% and hitting it not in 2030 when President Obama 
had set the target, but in 2019, 11 years earlier, it was actually innovators. President Trump withdrew the requirements. So let me say it again. We hit an Obama-era target of emissions reduction 11 years early during President Trump without mandates, without regulations. Which country in the world has reduced emissions more than the next 11, excuse me, 12 emissions-reducing countries combined? That would be the United States over about the last 17 years, uh, crossing over the Obama, the, 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 the Trump, and now the Biden administrations. Consistent reductions in emissions. Have we done that with mandates, with the government coming in, picking technological winners and losers? No, we've done it by letting innovators innovate. What has been the largest cause of that reduction in greenhouse gases? According to the IEA, it has been the United States transition to natural gas. What's going to happen with gas markets moving forward? We're going to see a 40% increase in demand for natural gas by 2040, especially from developing countries. Do you want that coming from Russia or do you want it coming from the United States? It has a 42 to 47% lower emissions profile. Look, the evidence is crystal clear. If we're going to move forward in a way that actually makes sense, we've got to do it based on evidence and with more science. When government comes in and tries to choose technological winners and losers, look, if I'm going to battle, I want the American Department of Defense, our military men and women with me. If I want somebody to pick the technological solution, I don't want government anywhere near me. I want the innovators to make those decisions. Can government incentivize? Yes, we did that under a Republican tax bill in December of 2017 with the 45Q Center for sequestration. We're making a huge mistake by moving in a direction that is partisan because it means that you're forcing winners and losers. And we're moving, we're moving in a huge, uh, we're making a, a big mistake if we move in a direction where government is forcing mandates and choosing technology because looking back at history, that is not how we've led the world. Last thing I'll say, Mike, what we've also got to look at is that we sit here and impose all these costs and solutions upon people in search of problems all day long. If we do not address this globally, we're not getting anywhere in regard to weather patterns and other challenges that folks have addressed. For every ton of reductions the United States has achieved, China's increased by four tons, four tons. Uh, 50% reduction in ozone uh, uh, pollutants in, in, in the United States, yet we've seen an increase in smog, uh, ground-level ozone. 65% of that is attributable to what's coming over from Asia. This is a global problem. Paris Accords result in increased emissions. Flawed strategies result in losing American jobs, driving up energy costs, causing an increased trade deficit. It's not in U.S. interest. Now, anybody want to address that? Let me just give our others a, a shot, Dina, then I'll take it around to you. Sure. I was just going to clarify one. Yeah, go ahead. Clarification I'm always for. The clarification I was just going to make was that um, when President George W. Bush uh, put in place light bulb efficiency standards, when President Obama put in place fuel emission standards or the Clean Power Plan, those were not picking winners and losers. Those are setting a standard that is for a certain level of efficiency that then the industry can innovate around. And I've talked to countless private sector leaders who found that those uh, standards were helpful and they're not about picking winners and losers. So I think there's just a distinction between the two different areas. The partisan solution that was actually done by Congress, not Bush, I helped write the law and it was a bipartisan solution based on a technology that was already widely accepted and in place, not something that was, that was hypothetical. But we got to a win in a bipartisan basis, which I think is what we're trying to bottle and do more of. Anybody else comment? And then I'm going to ask you uh, uh, my friend Jeb Bush's favorite question on any topic. I just want to emphasize this absolutely is a global problem. And the United States is responsible for 29% of it. Climate changes due to cumulative carbon emissions. And the United States has produced twice as much of those as China. So the United States has a responsibility to lead rather than dragging its feet. And when it comes to the Paris Agreement, every country has been in except the U.S. until just recently. So it's time to come together, and each country can bring something different. There is no mandate as to what each country can do. But pointing our fingers at others instead of taking the lead ourselves is not the way to inspire change. But should we – let me ask another question. I'll wind around. Is it a good idea for policymakers to start linking – China-specific policies like trade, where we're in the middle of an evolution in our relationship, to climate goals. There's been a lot of talk about that because I think I think I can I, I understand the argument that we should lead, but it's a legitimate argument too. I think to say the Chinese can do more. Now I hear they're what I've read, and I'm not the expert. Y'all are. They are improving, but the pace of improvement could always increase. What should policymakers do about that who are worried about China? And then I'll uh, have one more question on this. Okay, so let's so so again, global issue. It's it's global greenhouse gas concentrations. 
Uh, number one, under Paris Accords, it results in a net increase in emissions. Let me say that again. Paris Accords codifies an increase in global emissions. What are we celebrating? That's going in the wrong direction. And yes, Catherine, you are correct that the United States has been one of the top emitters under the Paris Accords. And now that we understand this and know better, this allows for China to surpass the United States, increase emissions by another 50% through 2030. Through 2030, during the period in which we know better, as China's out there right now saying that they're a rival to the U.S., uh, yet under the Paris Accords trying to sneak in as a, uh, as, as a, as a developing country. The reason that, uh, that, that you, you, you mentioned U.S. leadership, look, let me be clear on this. The United States is leading today. We're leading the world in reducing emissions. It's our technologies. It's our investments, which are more than every other country in the world in energy research and development that is resulting in these efficiency, conservation, and new technologies. Right in Houston, Texas, we have a, a facility called Net Power that's generating natural gas-fired electricity, net zero emissions, and at market prices. These are solutions that are based on U.S. resources. We've got to approach this collectively. Uh, and, and last thing I'll say on this is that we, we all have to keep in mind that, yes, the United States has emitted more historically, but the United States has given more to this world than any other country in the globe. So it's not like this was just something that was done for fun. The United States' economic output, our innovation has absolutely increased development and raised the, the, the standards of, of citizens around the globe. But we've also kind of earned the right to set the as the most as the highest superpower, at least for now, to set the world agenda. So we do have a certain burden. I, I can argue we have carried it in the past, but you know we're we're talking on this panel about forward solutions for climate change and how to convince rank and file red voters with their political power, which is immense, to warm to the issue. Because I talked to my Republican primary voter friends, a third are younger and want to do things and get it. And two-thirds say, you know, Hannity just straightened me out. It's all big liberal plot to make me eat kale and drive a solar-powered golf buggy. So what's the communication? How do you move the needle rather than hitting him over the head with hubris, which is kind of the emotional response some people have to that? Because, you know, if you don't change the political incentives where Republican politicians can get votes and survive Republican primaries with, with a, a, a pro-climate agenda within reason, um, you're going to be in gridlock while that climate clock keeps ticking. So I'm going to throw it to Wendy, the quick fastball question here. What, what are the best communication uh, tactics and things that, that resonate the most to turn skeptics into more open-minded people on this policy, other than you're an idiot and you're wrong and you shouldn't have voted for Trump? Because that, that message isn't going to do it. Well, so the first thing I want to say to that, that there's a lot of worry among climate scientists and, and people who are concerned about climate change, how can they convince the skeptics and what, what, what can they say to change the skeptics' minds? And forgetting all about people who are already worried about climate change, which is the majority of people even in the United States, and by missing that uh, the, the majority of the audience who are concerned about climate change, what's happening is that there are a lot of people who are concerned about climate change and who want to do something about it, who don't actually actually know necessarily what the best thing is to do about it. So families are fighting about who left the lights on. <laughs> this sounds familiar to some people probably. My father back in Detroit used to always yell at me as I went down the stairs, what, are you working for the Edison? Exactly. Uh, the local power company was obsessed with light switches. And this is a common thing. And the thing is, it's, of course, a very good idea to leave uh, to, to turn off the lights if you leave the room. But uh, if you want to conserve energy in your home, there are other things that you can do that will save a lot more energy, for example, uh, and, 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 and reduce your emissions. And that is uh, to blast the air conditioner less, for example, or to use the dryer less or to switch to more energy efficient um, appliances. Um, and the same thing with uh, food choices. So one of the, as individuals, one of the biggest impact on our, our personal carbon footprints is what we eat. And um, so uh, people who are concerned about climate change, uh, when they make food choices and think about climate change, they worry about the packaging. 
uh, we find in our surveys. So they, they want to choose food that has less packaging. And it's a good idea to reduce packaging, but the, the food choice that has the biggest uh, effect on your carbon footprint is how much meat you eat. And if you can reduce your uh, meat consumption a little bit, um, that can uh, make a big difference in your carbon footprint. So, so we worry a lot about the convincing the climate skeptics, but we forget all about the people who are already concerned about climate change and are not communicating well to them. That's the first point I want to make. Then uh, your question about the climate skeptics, if you want to um, uh, have effective communications with uh, people who uh, are skeptical about climate change, then, of course, I should say yelling at people doesn't help. Telling them that they're stupid, also not very effective. Um, and uh, instead try to focus on, on what people, um, you know, are worried about. Most, most people are seeing that the, the weather is becoming more extreme and they are worried about that. Um, so that would be uh, one way to start the communication. Excellent. Bina, you're in the communications business there as an editorial page editor and climate expert. What, what's your take on the sort of messaging. Well, one theme I'm hearing a lot is kind of micro messages, turn out the lights, run an energy efficient life. But one of the biggest things is agriculture. And boy, that is a hard one to move just because it has all this cultural connection. You go to the average Republican primary voter and tell them eating a hamburger is a problem. Uh, even though the math kind of backs that up. I got a neighbor who, who has a Tesla uh, and they love it. You know, it runs on electricity and a little bit of smugness, uh, but they're growing meat every damn weekend, tons of it. You know, it's delicious, great barbecue. So this is another one where it hits the culture. What? What? How do you communicate this stuff? How do you? How do you move people? Because if you move people, you move politicians. I love the way you phrase that runs on smugness. I used to, um, we've written headlines before that say, is it the Prius driver or the Pius driver? So I think one thing that we know <laughs> doesn't work is scolding people and shaming yeah. people, right? That that tends to not work. There's a certain degree to which within the context of a subculture or a community, we're setting social norms where it would indicate that you were, you know, we're doing something shameful if you went outside the norm, like, you know, smoking indoors these days is not inside the norm of a lot of cultural groups. Right. And so there is a sense in which uh, a shared norm that triggers some amount of shame might work and has been proven to work in the social science. But I would say in general, um, that's not the way to go about talking about this problem, not even maybe the way to go about solving it, right? So if you eat a burger now and then, enjoy a burger now and then, which I have to confess I do despite being raised by vegetarians, um, <laughs> you know, that doesn't mean that you're an evildoer and can't be part of the climate solution. So I think that's a really important thing for us to emphasize. And I have to give a plug for Catherine's uh, incredible TED Talk here because uh, she gave a wonderful TED Talk uh, about the most important thing you can do about solving climate change. And it's one I've showed to my um, courses at MIT about communicating science. It's one that I think about a lot. And it's about talking to the people you know and getting the message in groups that you know where you have trust and where you um, can actually you know, influence the norm, influence people's behavior. And uh, there's also an excellent uh, book about behavioral contagion um, uh, out from the Princeton Economist on this topic as well, influencing people by the way you act and behave. I also have to just say from my own work, uh, from the book I wrote, The Optimist Telescope, I think we have to take the lens out a little bit further from the issue of communication. So communication assumes we have a scientific finding. It's about climate change and how it's going to affect your family it's how it's going to affect your farm. And let me tell you that information and you should receive that information and then you should make certain decisions, right? You should plan better for your future. You should vote a certain way. You should eat a certain way, right? That kind of communication style and approach really discounts a lot of what Wendy's talked about and what she works on in her work uh, as a psychologist, which is to say that people don't make decisions based on information alone. People make decisions based on their values. They make, de make decisions uh, based on their emotions, based on biases, uh, based on cultural norms that surround them. And so what I like to say um, is that foresight and forecasts are not the same thing. So giving people just a simple forecast about what's going to happen and expecting that communication to resonate with them is not the same as speaking to them about the things that they care about most. What do they value most? Uh, and making it imaginable and salient to them. So a big gap that people have in being able to contemplate something like sea level rise or, you know, catastrophic droughts is if they haven't experienced that yet, it becomes very difficult to imagine their farm actually being affected in this way. 
once they've experienced one of those impacts, it changes completely. People go out and buy more insurance. They start to think differently about these problems. Do they connect it with the climate crisis is a different question. But I think a lot of what we need to do is bridge that imagination gap, which is about more than information. It's about helping people see and feel these impacts, helping them think about historical examples. Did their grandparents tell them stories about the Dust Bowl? I know a farmer in Kansas who talked to me a lot about his father's experience in the Dust Bowl as a farmer and how that influenced his thinking about the long-term impacts of climate change. I think that's a lot, a part, in part, a lot of what we need to do. Who are the best messengers that maybe people can imitate? You know, the in advertising psychology, there's been a lot of work done about how the great turning point, you kind of referenced it on smoking. Mid to late 80s, smoking became uncool. That had a massive market effect. I mean, that was something that wasn't really orchestrated by politicians, although public health advocates were part of it, the label law. But it was a huge shift. And it just kind of happened over five or six years. What what messengers, and Catherine, I'll go to you, do you think resonate the most? Because when AOC, I'm pro-climate change, I believe in science, uh, I'm for a gas tax, we're among Republicans, I'll never be elected to office because I'll get clipped in a primary, but I like changing the cost of gas, as I mentioned before, to incentivize people rather than paying them. But it um, when I'm yelled at by AOC about this in the morning, I find myself revving the engine on my gas guzzling car on the way to work that morning. This is an emotional response. So if hectoring by politicians doesn't work, um, and I'm still trying to make up with my neighbor with the Tesla so I can get invited to the barbecues again. Uh, what, who are the kind of people who, who have that, is it celebrities and pop culture? What, what, what's the code here, Catherine, to try to amplify this and to start moving people? Well, uh, guilt tripping people and waving judgy fingers doesn't really help no matter who's doing it. I had to laugh at your story because I, I can do you one better. I was at a meeting with Christian leaders a number of years ago talking about how we could reach out to and engage with the Christian community. And by mid-afternoon, one man who lived in a Catholic community had had enough. And he just leaned across the table, pounded his fists and said, the answer is simple. You just tell everyone that driving is a sin. Every time you turn on your car, you're sitting. And my reaction was, oh, really? So when I came here, that was a sin. I live in an area without public transportation. Going to church is a sin. Taking my child to the doctor is a sin. By the time I got through all this list of, oh, so this is a sin, I just wanted to go out and find the biggest Hummer I could and drive circles around him going, sinning, I'm sinning. So that type of messaging doesn't work with any of us. Right. It just makes us resentful and being blamed as if living our lives is, is something wrong. The best way to talk about this is beginning with something that we share and we have in common, talking about how it's affected and what we can do to be part of the solution in a positive way. And the best messenger, if I could, is the messenger with whom we have the most in common. It turns out that friends and family are the most effective people to help change our social norms, which is exactly what you're talking about. Our social norms are our understanding of what's the right way to, for the world to be. And our social norms have changed radically over time. It used to be perfectly acceptable to take your chamber pot and throw it out the window. That is not acceptable these days. Those social norms have changed. It used to be acceptable to smoke on an airplane. It is not. Those social norms have changed. How do they change? by hearing and seeing other people saying things and doing things differently. And that is why every single one of us, we are the most effective messengers. Congressman, a question for you as somebody living in the practical world of politics. When you're back home and in your district in Baton Rouge, you're doing a town hall, and you're kind of getting the, the hairy eyeball from the back of the row from somebody who's a rock rib Republican primary voter and worries you might be straying a little bit. Uh, from the, the catechism on this climate thing is a bunch of liberal snowflakes getting all worked up about nothing. And they come up to you. You have to talk to them as a, as a Paul. You, you know, you want to straighten them out, but you don't want to hector them because, you know, you don't want primaries. How do, how do you navigate it? You, you talked earlier about kind of meeting people where they are and, and, and what are the right words. Uh, Bina talked about uh, how you talk to people about experiences that they've had before. Uh, Wendy talked about some of the things that individuals can do. And, and Wendy, for the record, I haven't had a piece of meat in 30 years and I have two electric vehicles, not one, two. <laughs> now, don't let that get out in the primary. I'll tell you as a consultant. <laughs> tell them about one. <laughs> it's, it's fact. It's fact. Uh, so, <laughs> so, great. 
So, so look, I, I, I think that you, 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 let me go back to the first thing. We've got to meet people where they are. I'm, I'm a conservative Republican. I believe in climate change. I believe that we have got to act with urgency. And, and so we talked earlier about not having these 100,000 foot level, you know, climate change discussions, instead breaking it up into pieces. So, so being able to explain to people, just as I said before, do you know which country is leading the world in emissions reduction? The United States. Do you know which country is leading the world in innovation in R&D? The United States. Do you know which country um, uh, has, has in the last three years under a Republican Congress and a Republican administration made the biggest policy changes and investment in resiliency ever? The United States. And so, you know, talking about issues that, that, first of all, from the terms that people understand, let me give you one other example. President Trump, some of the things that he did that he was, he was well known for, going through and cutting regulation um, and, and improving the efficiency of the regulatory environment and compliance. Uh, the tax bill that we did in 2017 to help to improve the competitiveness of the U.S. workforce on a global level. Number three is that the president came in and had this big trade agenda. I want free and fair trade agreements, fair, to give a level playing for the United States. I can come in and say on top of that, hey, we've got this initiatives, these initiatives we're working on to help improve the efficiency and conservation of electricity to reduce the cost of your factory building widgets, of your cost to heat and cool your home, of the cost of driving your uh, your your car or truck or 18-wheel or whatever it is, getting these products to market. And, and, and so I can talk to people in ways that, that, that really resonates with them. It's consistent with this agenda of efficiency, cutting red tape, leveling the playing field by reducing energy costs and consumption. But you know what else it does when I'm talking to liberals? Hey, we've got a strategy that's going to reduce emissions, increase renewable energy uh, technologies. I mean, I'm talking about the same stuff. It's just the words that we use to connect with people. And as being said, just, just, just really making it personal and resonating with experiences that folks have had. Anybody want to address that? If not, I've got another question. I've done some political work in Europe, and uh, some of my quite savvy French conservative friends always pull me inside, and they say, why do you guys hate nukes so much? You know, the new Gen 3, Gen 4 technology is, is, is inherently so much safer. We're doing it here. Um, they always like to prod me and say, you know, your most nuclear state is Vermont, which is perceived as a super green place. Why, why do you think that's not being discussed as part of the solution? Because I can see an argument, nukes are American jobs that pay well, nukes are energy uh, uh, efficient, and nukes don't create greenhouse grasses, gases, except during the production chain to build the components, which is much smaller. Um, I can actually tell you, though, that yeah. there is new modular nuclear technology going online right now. Idaho National Labs is partnered right. in, with Utah um, to put up new technology that's a lot more affordable. Because mm-hmm. up until now, the only new nuclear plant they tried to build in the U.S. in the Carolinas was so expensive that right. one headline was like they literally paid, I forget how much it was, like $9 billion to dig a hole in the ground and fill it back up again. So old technology has not been cost effective, but they are pursuing new technology, such as these tiny little modular reactors, which are a lot easier, a lot more affordable, and if carefully positioned, also a lot safer than traditional nuclear. Though I agree with all that, but one of the problems has been they're very hard to permit. So, you're, you know, it's one-off, large planning cycles. And it strikes me, just like on the right, they have reflexive political refusal on some things. On the left, there's this reflexive thing about nuclear power. Um, or am I wrong? Is there more enthusiasm now in the climate world from that than not? Because I think if, if, you know, a president said, we're going to build a dozen of them, standard design, the modern type, uh, some of the cost and, and regulatory stuff would be a lot easier and might, might pencil better. It just seems like a blind spot to me, but then, uh, you know, I may be missing something. I think it's a combination of factors that I think, you know, it'd be wrong to say there isn't a political element of this and that there aren't, um, you know, environmentalists who kind of remain um, opposed to nuclear as a matter of principle. Uh, but there are, are, in fact, cost issues, Catherine raised, that potentially new technology can help us get around. Uh, There are legitimate questions around long-term waste, and particularly in this country where we have Mm -hmm. no plan for long-term waste. So what I would love to see is nuclear remain part of the conversation along with 
conversations about transmission that really don't happen enough um, because part of what we're talking about is how to distribute renewable energy that people think of as intermittent, but making it widely available where it's needed, right. when it's needed, and talk more about storage and put put those things together as as a picture, right? I think people tend to reduce these problems and say we need X, Y, and Z source of things that we need to um, burn or explode or, or have yeah. turned in a certain direction in order to right. um, have energy instead of thinking about it from the perspective of a holistic infrastructure that supports our energy. Um, and I also think what's interesting is to see hydrogen coming back into the conversation yeah. as another potential base fuel. Oh, I just wanted to say that accidents like uh, Chernobyl, well, that's a while ago, but Fukushima, uh, you know, have not done much for uh, the public right. image of nuclear power. So people are concerned about safety and perhaps uh, rightfully so. Yeah, no, people always protect the downside. That's why negative political TV ads work so well. Quick question. If you were our friend, the congressman, and you were running off the vote right now, if you were in the thick of it, what would be the one thing you spent 70, 80 percent of your time on in the climate agenda in the short term in Congress? What one piece of policy, if you had to rank everything to try to make a difference there in that world, what would you, what would you spend your time in? Cause that's what congressmen have to do. Or congressmen, it's true. Yeah, they, they have to pick one nail to drive. First of all, I would make sure that climate risks and climate solutions were incorporated into everything we were talking about with the Department of Defense, the Department of Transportation, the Department of Commerce, the Department of Education, the, the Department of State. Climate change yeah. is not a niche EPA issue. It is an everything issue. So the first thing I would make sure is that it covered the whole gamut. A friend of mine says the best way to move business is to terrorize their insurers. Bina, how about you? And we're, we're land on Wendy. We're going to elect you all to Congress. Okay, I'm going to kind of cheat and say that my answer, if I were being really practical right now, would be to make sure that the National Clean Electricity Standard, which is part of the um, infrastructure bill that uh, Biden-Harris has put forward, uh, gets enough support to pass because that basically sets standards for the electricity sector to make sure the electricity sector can decarbonize on its calendar it needs to to make sure we avoid the worst climate impacts or give us a chance of doing that. Um, but I think just from a point of view of like what I think is really interesting and could potentially mm -hmm. move mountains, I would be very interested in um, thinking about how you pass policy for the financial sector, uh, including yeah. insurers, uh, to think about um, requiring right climate risk and looking at lo um, long-range climate impacts as well as climate savings from avoiding um, climate disasters and from benefits to public health of reducing pollution. Right. Wendy, welcome to Congress. I'm going to uh, build on things that uh, Bina and Catherine both have uh, mentioned, and that is changing behavior is not just about effective communication and what you say, but it's also about how you change the choice environment, the environment in which people choose what they, what they do and, and wh whether their behavior is sustainable or not. And so um, I would like it to be a standard consideration in every policy to think about how we can change um, our society so that the, the, the green option is always the default. So you don't have, so that you don't even have to think about what you eat, what car you drive, uh, or, or how you get to work so that it becomes easier to just choose what is the environmentally friendly option. Excellent. You'd all, you'd all make uh, impressive members of Congress. I think you have a sharp, sharp view of what to do. They don't always, let me tell you. All right. Now let's go to questions. You can again use the, uh, uh, the magic, uh, what is it called? The Q and A box. I always want to say the chat room, but before we take the first question, anything else any of you want to bring up here? A quick round robin, something we missed, something that's important that ought to be heard. I would love to just, just share this. So, you know, tomorrow's Earth Day, right? And we often think of caring about the earth as a niche issue. You know, environmentalists care about it, environmentalists take care of it, and the rest of us wish them well. But the reality is we humans and our economy and everything that we love that makes our lives comfortable and valuable and useful, we cannot float around in outer space without the air that this planet provides for us to breathe, without the water we drink, the food we eat, the resources that we use to make every single thing that we have. So to care about these issues, we don't have to be left or right or bipartisan. We don't have to be male or female or live in a certain part of the country, rich or poor. We only have to be one thing, and that is a human living on this planet. Every single one of us is already that, which means we're the perfect person to care. And if we don't think we care, 
It's simply because we have not yet connected the dots between what is already at the very top of our priority list today, whoever we are, and how climate change directly affects every single one of those things, whether it's our child, national security, our job, the safety of our home, or more. Yeah, no, I think it's a good argument. I'd much rather talk to voters in the Los Angeles basin where I live about our epidemic of child asthma because we haven't provided free electricity at the ports for those ships to tie up to, and they grind out tremendous amount of CO2. I'm going to start the first question here. We have a couple. Oh, you're all telling me you can't run for Congress. <laughs> oh, you can. Or figure it out. I'm Canadian. Yeah, well. <laughs> I'm Dutch. Okay. Bina, what's your excuse? I'm too unfiltered. I no. say what I think too much. Not good political trait. All you got to do is win a Democratic primary. It's Massachusetts. Find you the right district. Okay. Carbon taxes. We got some stuff about that. So let me find a good question here. Uh, this is from Elizabeth Fenner. I agree the best policy has a specific focus, like the standards and the tech to change light bulbs. I don't want to, I can't read it all for time, but a carbon tax does the trick. It spurs innovation disincentivizes polluting technology, and dividend-based is very popular and fair. Can panelists support a cash-to-households carbon tax? Okay. Well, look, I'm from Canada, and that's exactly what we have. We have a price on carbon that's going to be ratcheting up $15 a year until it reaches a cost that is actually effective to help meet the Paris targets. And here in the U.S., if people aren't aware, there are bipartisan climate solutions caucuses in both the House and the Senate. And there is an organization called the Climate Leadership Council that includes very big corporations, including the auto manufacturers and some oil and gas companies, that at least on paper supports carbon pricing. Mm-hmm. So if you're looking for something that provides carrots and sticks that goes across, cuts across the entire economy at one shot and something that is already implemented in over 60 countries in the, around the world, that is definitely an option. Wendy, Bina, anything on carbon taxes or that concept? I, I'm, you know, I, I'm for fading in a gas tax a buck a year for five years with vouchers for the working poor simply because I want to move people to electrification to the market, not by trying to bribe them for 10 grand. It's not working now. But anyway, um, I'll go on for hours about that for everybody. What, what do you think about the politics of carbon taxes and the policy merits? I've always thought that the carbon tax and dividend should be a no-brainer for the U.S. I mean, I, I'm surprised it's taken this long for there to be um, folks like the Climate Leadership Council coming together, you know, recommending from different parties. It's not sitting politicians who are part of that. It's, um, you know, been um, former secretaries of state and so on that have gotten behind that from both parties. Um, But it just seems very practical to me as a way of of doing this through the market. And as Catherine mentioned, there are other countries, there are other um, jurisdictions that have tried uh, this approach. Uh, I don't, again, I I sort of, um, I think that the way the question is framed, comes from a point of view that perhaps I don't necessarily hold, which is that there's only one policy solution and one policy design that can get us to um, reducing emissions effectively. Um, I think there are some that are more ideal from a practical point of view, like they would just send the right message to the marketplace and it would be efficient in terms of getting this um, done through the free markets, through somewhat free markets, no such thing as a real free market in in this world that we live in right now. And but they seem less pragmatic when you start to look at the politics of actually moving this forward, though that could change. Um, so I would just say, you know, things like renewable portfolio standards, um, like the national clean electricity standards, cap and trade, right? Like there are all these different kinds of approaches to doing that same thing, which is cutting emissions on uh, a rapid calendar. Wendy, does carbon tax or that suite of ideas, do they communicate well or do people hear tax and freak out? Psychologists have long shown that taxes are a negative, uh, have, have a negative connotation to, to especially Republicans maybe. But, uh, um, people don't like them, but, uh, you could implement them also by rather than making what you want to discourage, making that more expensive, you could also implement them by making what you want to encourage cheaper. And so it's a, it's a matter of framing here, but um, that way uh, you might move people's behavior without creating resistance. Excellent. From Sydney Robles, many American multinational firms continue to contribute to increased greenhouse gas emissions and pollution abroad. 
through their investment in foreign production chains or in states with minimal environmental regulations. What responsibility does the United States have to regulate the actions of American companies abroad when they contribute to climate change? My reaction, this reminds me of when city councils used to pass nuclear free zones to ban the Soviets from ever bombing them because uh, global commerce is kind of a complicated thing. And I'm not sure by hobbling a supply chain, you're going to eliminate it at the other end because others will buy the production. But am I wrong? What do we think about using government power to control supply chains with a climate point of view on U.S. multinationals? Anybody? I feel the enthusiasm for the idea here. (laughs) I was going to say, this isn't quite the same, but I think the EU, um, and people can correct me here because the the latest on this may not be um, what I'm about to say, but at least at some point in the recent past, this was, this was true. So let me just give that caveat, Um, was contemplating, right, a tariff-based approach to um, goods um, based on their climate impact. And so I think there is a way in which, you know, either groups of nations or nations could look at policies like this. I don't know, you know, in terms of like an efficient approach to addressing emissions caused by companies, whether it makes sense to do it from policy directed at the corporations themselves or where it, whether it makes sense to do it based on policies around emissions within those particular countries. Just from a practical point of view, it seems to me, it seems right. messy, but I don't, I'm saying that just on sort of like gut reaction to the question, not with having deeply studied it. Okay. Congressman, thank you for coming back. We're just about to wrap up, but I'll, I'll give you, we had a question, a couple of questions. I read one of them about the wisdom of carbon taxes to incentivize change over time. What's your take on that as somebody who uh, is in the middle of that, that political discussion in Congress? So we've, we've got to continue to keep in mind that this is a global issue. By coming in and, and, and raising costs in the United States, all it does is it, it pushes manufacturing, it pushes economic activity overseas to economies that have less efficiency or greater emissions. It's called offshoring or leaking. Uh, you would see the offshoring of jobs or the leaking of emissions in other countries, which is why I do want to commend uh, Secretary Kerry for the multilateral collaboration. That's one thing about the Paris Agreement that I totally agree with. We've got to have these multilateral or these global forums where we're actually discussing this because it truly is a global issue. I'm just disappointed that the that the agreement results again in an increase in emissions. So I don't think that a carbon tax is the right approach, especially not right now. But um, but but I do think that um, but because of the offshoring of jobs and the and the ultimate increase in global emissions that that would result. Uh, moving it from a, a less efficient, um, uh, moving it to a less efficient economy to a more efficient economy like the United States. Excellent. Okay, we are out of time, so I'm going to finish and let's go around and let people know where they can follow you. Twitter, website, my website at USC. Catherine, where can we see that TED Talk or anything else? Well, start on my website, which is just my name, CatherineHayhill.com, and you can also find me on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn. Instagram, and my TED Talk, you can just find by Googling. Excellent. Congressman, where can people keep up with what you're doing? Uh, It's garrettgraves.house.gov. That's Garrett with one T. Garrettgraves.house.gov has links to all of our social media platforms there as well. And Bina? Uh, You can find me in the Boston Globe's uh, opinion pages online. And um, I'm also on Twitter at BinaJV. And my website is writerbina.com. Excellent. Well, thank all of you for a wonderful discussion and giving us your time today and your thoughts. I learned a lot. And all of us here at the USC Center for Political Future appreciate it. Thank you, everybody. And thanks for tuning in. Thank you for joining us on The Bully Pulpit. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars wherever you get your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at USC POL Future. That's USC POL Future. Follow us on Facebook and YouTube and visit our website for upcoming programs. 